The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. The following audio blogs can be found in written form at foundationsofreconstruction.com and have been produced into audio format by its authors. The following audio blog, titled The Doctrine of the Covenant, was written and recorded by Jonathan Character on November 27, 2016. The scriptures teach that Christ rules today. If you doubt this truth, you have only to look at the weather, famines, drought, earthquakes, and violent winds. These are all testimonies that the king is on his throne and does not take lightly the rebellion of men against his law. Which law? The law of the covenant. This is a major area wherein the modern church has failed in its presentation of the scriptures. God is typically presented in either one of two ways. As a cosmic coke machine or as a fire and life insurance agent. Both are equally blasphemous. God is neither of these. God is not a voyeur, disconnected, and uninterested in the doings of men. Instead, God is covenantal. What is a covenant? Fundamentally, a covenant is a treaty, but in actuality, it is much more than that. There are two basic types of covenants. First, covenants between relative equals. This type of covenant is between two individuals. In the case of marriage, the covenant is between a man and a woman. A biblical example of the covenant between relative equals is found in the covenant made between Jonathan and David, 1 Samuel 18. Oftentimes in such covenants, blood would be mingled, symbolizing that the two parties in the covenant were now of one blood. Furthermore, the parties involved would establish the law of the covenant and appropriate sanctions to be bestowed based upon their faithfulness to the covenant. Second, we see covenants between unequal powers. This is the type of covenant we find in the scriptures. It is a covenant where the greater God gives his law to the lesser man, declares that he of his grace enters into a relationship with him. In such a covenant, the greater demands conformity to his law and in turn promises protection and provision for the lesser. For a greater to enter into a covenant with a lesser would be an act of grace. Thus, the covenant was a covenant of grace, but it was also simultaneously a covenant of law because the greater gave his law to the lesser. Furthermore, the greater gave his law to the lesser as a sign of his grace. The covenant is at one and the same time of grace and law. The scriptures are our covenant book. They're given by God a greater, who by his grace enters into a relationship covenant with us, a lesser, and declares to us 
This is the way, walk ye therein. But such a covenant requires a mutual adherence. Both parties pledged themselves to death to fulfill the terms of the covenant. The greater was to provide protection, and the lesser was to offer uncompromised obedience to the law of the covenant. We can now clearly see the plight of mankind. He is the covenant breaker. He violated the terms, law, of the covenant, and now faces the wrath of the greater, therefore. An additional aspect of the doctrine of the covenant, as outlined in the scripture, is land. On this point, feudalism reflects very much the biblical model. The king, or prince, gave land to his subjects and offered protection of them in return for obedience to his law and their service, both military and economic, to him. In the garden, when God established his covenant with Adam, he gave him the earth over which to take dominion. Genesis 1.26 When God gave his covenant to Noah, he reiterated the dominion covenant made with Adam. When God gave his covenant to Abraham, he promised him the land of Canaan. Genesis 15.7 Now consider the covenant at Sinai. Yes, it involved the giving of the law, but when it was reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy, what is the immediate context? The conquest of Canaan. The greater God was bestowing a gift of land and law in the case of the covenant of Sinai to the lesser. Should we expect anything different in the new and better covenant? Hebrews 8.6 By no means. Paul says that God's promise to Abraham was that his seed should inherit the world. Romans 4.13 This promise is reiterated by Christ's words in Matthew 5.5 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Throughout, God makes it clear who it is that inherits the earth. Covenant-keeping man. Psalm 37, Proverbs 2 Christ's commission to his disciples was in terms of his covenant. God's covenant was made with his church and involved the subduing of the earth and the bringing of the obedience thereof to his law word. Many commentators have rightly pointed to this commission as great. But what is it great in terms of? The answer might surprise you. It is great in terms of a previous commission, one given to physical Israel under the leadership of Joshua. Quote, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even to the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with thee. I will not fail thee, I will not forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Thou shalt not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night 
that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong, and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Joshua 1, 1-9 The Great Commission is great in terms of its scope and mission. It involves the entire earth, not just one strip of land in Palestine. The commission to Joshua was simply a shadow, a pilot project, which looked forward to the greater reality, the victory of the church under the new covenant. The law of the covenant is still to be held as supreme today. Quote, Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. End of quote. Matthew 28.18 In order to accomplish this victory, we must learn from the failures of the past. We must also realize that victory is promised and will be secured in history. For, quote, if God is for us, who can be against us? End of quote. Romans 8.30 God is a covenant God. He has given us his covenant document, the scriptures. We are to live as his covenant people by his covenant law. This is not a burden, but instead our delight. It is not bondage, but ultimate freedom. It is a sad fact that the modern church has failed to see the importance of the doctrine of the covenant. God himself sets forth the centrality of his covenant word in an oft-overlooked passage. In the scriptures, names were definitions. Abraham had three names, each defining who he was as a man. In the book of Philemon, Onesimus is defined by Paul as profitable. Similarly, since God is the source of definitions, he refuses to be named. Exodus 3, 13-14 God is. God is who he is. God is beyond definition and does not allow man to define him. Instead, he defines himself. His definition is fundamentally his character. God is holy, just, love, truth, righteousness, etc., etc., etc. God repeatedly exalts his name, character. It is supreme and must not be defiled. Ezekiel 36.23 We might be led to ask then, What can surpass God's name? Is it not the very definition of who he is? Psalm 138.2 gives us a definite answer to this question. Quote, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified the word above all thy name. God's covenant word is the only thing which surpasses his name. This is how God regards his covenant. Let us strive to do the same. The following audio blog titled Sacrilege was written and recorded by Jonathan Character on November 27, 2016. God's law prohibits theft. Quote, thou shalt not steal. End of quote, Exodus 20:15. Theft assumes ownership. God, as the owner of all, Psalm 24, 1, designates ownership of the earth to his vice regents, covenant man. Theft is thus not only an offense against man, but also against God. Theft of a neighbor's property is necessarily theft of God's property. Sacrilege is the robbing of God. It fundamentally constitutes an offense against God, directly, and an offense against neighbor indirectly. In Joshua chapter 7, we have a vivid account in the story of Achan of sacrilege, of robbing God. Prior to this narrative, Israel has come into the land of Canaan, and arrived at the first city, Jericho. 
God required Jericho as the first fruits unto him. This was to serve as a reminder to his people that he took preeminence. God not only required a tithe after the harvest was collected, but also the first fruits at the beginning of the harvest. The first fruits offering was thus one of faith. It was one of trust in the Lord that he would bless you if you obeyed him. Because of God's claim upon Jericho as his first fruits, the city was to be given over to total destruction. All the vessels, gold, and silver were to be given to the Lord for the use of his priests and Levites. The household of Rahab was to be separated to him and made holy thereby. The entire city belonged to God, either to be destroyed or set apart for his service. Achan, however, denied God's ownership and claim of preeminence to Jericho. He set himself on par with God. He appropriated a portion which only belonged to God to himself. He robbed God of his due and received the death penalty because of it. Not only was he destroyed for his sin against God, but the wealth which he assumed for himself was devoted to destruction along with him, as God had originally commanded it be. Moreover, God's destruction of Jericho was to be complete and final. Joshua, after the destruction of the city, declared, quote, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his first at the cost of his firstborn shall he lay his foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. We are told in first Kings sixteen thirty four that Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho at the expense of his eldest, and hung the gates thereof at the cost of his youngest, quote, according to the word of Joshua, son of Nun. Sacrilege thus involved a curse. It meant the loss of progeny and lineage. This fact is exemplified in the story of Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas led the people of Israel into sacrilege, taking the Lord's portion of sacrifices for themselves. 1 Samuel 2 They not, they not only robbed the Lord of his substance, but also of the holiness he required in the sanctuary. For, quote, they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. End of quote. God pronounces curse upon Eli and his house for sacrilege through the mouth of Samuel. Quote, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. With those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. 1 Samuel 2, 27-36 In Malachi t chapter 3, we have perhaps the most vivid portrayal of sacrilege and God's pronouncement of judgment upon it. Quote, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? And your tithes and offerings. End of quote. It is important to note here that Israel is not only cursed for having robbed God by withholding his tax, tithe, but also because they had withheld offerings. God requires more than the minimum. The tithe is God's tax upon his creatures by virtue of creation. Offerings are God's due and are given out of gratefulness for his work of recreation. Continuing in Malachi 3, God declares, quote, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, 
the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. End of quote. Blessings and curses are necessarily tied to covenant faithfulness. If we rob God by withholding his tithes and offerings, we can expect curses. God does not take sacrilege lightly. He pronounces his curse upon those who take part in it. In generations past, the significance of sacrilege was clearly understood. Interestingly, because of this, even pagans during the Middle Ages were fearful of sacrilege. They were afraid of robbing God. Why was this? Because they robbed God and found they suffered God's curse for it. Because of this well-known fact, both merchants and businessmen alike stored their wealth in the church. When the German barbarians invaded Europe in the late 5th century, they knew the churches held the wealth of the continent, but did not dare attack them because they were afraid of committing sacrilege. Henry VIII was perhaps the greatest figure in English church history, and an instrumental figure in the Reformation in England. He was, however, a very greedy man. He very early in his reign used up the wealth that his father, Henry VII, had accumulated. The place to go for money was now their religious foundations, the monasteries, convents, and churches. Henry was, however, also fearful of sacrilege, and thus did not have the audacity to straight up rob the churches. Instead, Henry instituted a pseudo-reformation in England, and sent out commissioners to, quote, investigate the corruption in the monasteries and convents. He did find corruption, but he used this as an excuse to seize all the land and money of these religious foundations for himself. He laid hands on money and assets that had been devoted to the work of the Lord and claimed it for himself. Upon the confiscation of church property, Henry redistributed this newly acquired wealth to his nobles. Within a generation, only 14 of the several hundred men who had received lands from Henry had heirs. These families were struck down by God for taking what belonged to him and using it for their own purposes. After a hundred years, not a single one of these families remained. God's judgment for sacrilege remained unchanged. Interestingly, the other families of nobility in England who had also received portions of Henry's land, but not God's land, survived. After a hundred years, they still had heirs and were thriving. The families that took God's land disappeared. Henry's own family also disappeared as the House of Tudor lost claim to the throne following the reign of Elizabeth I. Shortly following Henry's unprecedented confiscation of church lands, Reverend Thomas Laver preached a series of sermons on the topic of sacrilege in London, declaring that Henry, as the English sovereign, had committed sacrilege. He reminded the people of the incumbent judgment from God under which they would be required to suffer for robbing God. The sermons by labor sparked national repentance in an attempt by the people to work a form of restitution for the sin of sacrilege committed by Henry. Never in the history of the church has there been such an explosion of Christian institutions, schools, welfare institutions, etc., than resulted from the preaching of labor. Sacrilege was recognized as a sin it is and feared accordingly. Today the sin of sacrilege is not preached against. Many Christians do not even know what the word means. Yet they are suffering God's curse for their sacrilege. 
Our day is much like that of Malachi's. We reap the curse of God and wonder why. We rob God and know not how. God's law must reign supreme and we must cease to rob him. We must cease to withhold his tax. Our offerings of gratitude and our lives for his service. His law word must reign supreme such that we find our freedom in it and reap the blessings which obedience unto it bring. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.